0: Well, each week uh, in in our service, we have two scripture readings, and the first one is often relevant to the season of the church, church life, the church calendar that we're in. And today, as you can see, our reading is from 1 Corinthians 15. And what the whole of 1 Corinthians 15 is about, what does the resurrection mean? So we have the events in the gospel accounts, but what does it mean? And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 begins to explain what what the stakes are of the resurrection, why it matters if Christ indeed did rise. And so we're going to read this together, and Heather is going to come and read it for us. Heather, if you would.
1: whom he did did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive.
0: We're going to read from Matthew 28 in just a moment. Uh, Matthew 28 is one of the four accounts we have of Jesus' resurrection. All four gospel writers uh, write about it. Uh, And we're going to read Matthews and reflect on it together. Why does the resurrection matter? What actually happened that day? What about these other stories about what happened to Jesus' body? That's what we're going to be talking about in just a moment. But we're going to read this text first. And Tyler, there he is. Tyler is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along in your bulletin.
2: Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee
0: going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. There are turning points of history after which we can definitively say that the world changed. COVID, of course, the most recent example. In some ways, it's hard to remember the pre-COVID world, the, the before times, the way things used to be. The COVID-19 pandemic forever altered us. We aren't the same. We don't operate and live the same way as we did before. sort of the same thing, at the very least it changed, air travel forever, it brought home at least to Western countries the realities of terrorism. And if you're a little bit older and you begin to work your way further back in history, you can think of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the moon landing, the world wars, and so on. Many points at which we can say the world was different, it changed on that day, it wasn't the same. And by saying it changed, I don't mean that everyone universally agreed on what happened, or that everyone saw these events in the same way, of course not. Simply that the event itself was so momentous, it was, it it sort of weighed so much that it changed the trajectory of human existence. So my contention this morning is simply this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's one of these moments, and particularly as a Christian pastor, I believe it's actually the most consequential of all the moments. Once Jesus rose, the world would never be the same. The growth of Christianity from a few dozen people to billions now worldwide, the subsequent influence on every aspect of society, culture, science, progress, it far outweighs anything like COVID-19, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And yet, not everyone sees it the same way. There may be two billion Christians who believe the resurrection happened, but there are more than that, more, more humans than that, who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. There isn't just one story about what happened to Jesus. There are many stories, a number of stories, and it's worth our time, I think, this morning to look at some of these warring stories, because from the very start, there have been different accounts of what happened. The Bible does not flinch from the historical reality that we know today. So did the resurrection happen? And if it did, why does it matter? Let's look at this chapter in three parts. Part one, we'll talk about the commission, the first thing that the women were sent to do. Then we'll talk about the anti-commission that was given to the guards. And thirdly, the great commission. So according to Matthew, the, the, the gospel writer here, Jesus died on a Friday evening, not long before the sun went down. Jews celebrate their Sabbath day, their, their holy day in their week, from sundown to sundown. They don't have a strict uh, daily, you know, solar calendar or whatever. So the Sabbath went from Friday night sundown, when the sun went down on Friday night, to Saturday night sundown. And Jesus was laid in a new tomb from Friday night through Saturday night into Sunday morning, which is where our passage opens. And in verse 1, the Sabbath is over. It's nearly dawn. You can think of it. The sky is sort of brightening. You know, it's getting, if you get up that early, it's, it's getting bright. There's enough light to walk safely outside, but the sun is not yet up. But two Marys are up and they're on their way to the tomb. Now they know where to go because they were there on Friday when Jesus's body was laid in it. But because he died so close to sundown, they didn't have time to finish the burial preparations. There were spices and perfumes and things. And so they were headed to the tomb to finish the work. And in verse two, there's this word, behold. And it pops up. There are actually five beholds in this passage. Kids, if you need something to do, go try to find, you will know, circle all five beholds. The, the word means look, and it often indicates surprise or something unusual is happening. Unusual indeed. Because as the Marys are walking what would have been a normal-ish walk, a great earthquake takes place. And if you were here when you, and you heard Frankie preach on Good Friday, you remember, remember, this is now the second earthquake in three days both timed around major events in the life of Jesus. So an earthquake, why an earthquake? Well, it says an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. So this wasn't one of our ordinary earthquakes, tectonic plate shifts or whatever, no, no. This is the ground shaking in response to a supernatural event. An angel is rolling back the stone that had covered the entrance to Jesus's tomb. But not for the reason you think, it wasn't so Jesus could get out. We soon learn Jesus cannot be contained by walls and stone. He could have left and he did leave whenever he wanted. Presumably he was already gone by this point. We find out quickly the tomb was opened, not so Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in. So the women could go and look at the place where he used to be and see that it was empty. The angel that descends is not in disguise. His glory was on full display. Matthew says, I love it. He's like, he looked like a bolt of lightning and he had white shining clothes. The Roman guards assigned to the tomb, if you read the end of chapter 27, you can read about that, but they are stunned into some sort of coma, like an animal that freezes, you know, when a predator attacks. They're just, they're in this kind of stasis. They're just shocked. They become like dead men. The women though, the two Marys, they don't respond like the guards, though they are afraid they're not frozen. The angel reassures them in verse 5 says, come into the tomb, go take a look. You remember the, the shelf that you put him on, he's not there anymore, and, he, and the angel tells them Jesus is risen just like he promised. And then the angel gives instructions, and that's what I'm calling the first commission. The women should go, and the go is used twice in this passage too, the women should go and tell the disciples the good news about Jesus rising from the dead, and tell the disciples to go meet Jesus in Galilee. The women depart basically at a run, Matthew says, moving quickly, but afraid and happy all at the same time. And who should they meet? Behold! Another behold. Behold! Surprise! It's Jesus. Jesus is there, and he basically repeats the angelic message. Don't be afraid. I'm alive. Go tell my brothers, go to Galilee where they'll meet me. And I think we can summarize this first commission as this message. Jesus is alive, and you don't have to be afraid. Jesus is alive and you don't have to be afraid. It's an astonishing message for these women, their world is now turned completely upside down. As far as they knew up until this point, Good Friday was a disaster. For these women, whatever they thought Jesus was, whatever they hoped he would be, they buried those hopes on Good Friday. All their dreams had died along with Jesus. And also, though Jesus calls them his brothers here, Good Friday was a day of, of immense shame and guilt and sadness for the disciples. They all lost heart. They all ran away. Peter explicitly denies knowing Jesus. The other disciples implicitly deny knowing Jesus by their absence. So for these guilt, guilty and sad and mourning and, and, and shamed people, Easter Saturday was not a day of egg hunts, an extra day off of work. It was a day of shocked mourning. If you've been in grief, you know one of those days when you realize over and over, oh, they're gone. That this person I loved is gone. Their world had come to an end. And now on Easter Sunday, everything is upside down. A dead man is alive. Alive men, the guards, are acting dead. Solid ground is shaking. Angels are appearing, handing out messages. The long silence of Easter Saturday has been turned into a morning of, of, of noise, <laughs> of earthquakes, and instructions, and, and reassurances. And the, what the women find out is that the world didn't die, just a new world was being born. If Jesus is alive, then nothing was ever going to be the same. The old world was never coming back, but a new world was beginning. And, and this is the Christian message. Christ has died, Christ has risen. And of course, Christ will come again, but the world is not what you thought it was. And what does a belief in the resurrection, what does it do to a person? Well, over and over we learn it does something to their fear. On Friday, the disciples were afraid, we're told that. On Sunday morning, there's no longer anything to fear. The angel tells them, Jesus tells them, you don't have to be afraid anymore. From history, we know, whatever, I mean, whatever you want to believe about how Christianity got started, What's historically knowable and provable is that the early Christians, they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid of persecution. They weren't afraid of the authorities, Roman or Jewish or anything else. They weren't afraid to share the good news with their neighbors. They would have felt fear, of course, but they were filled with a new kind of courage that overcame all of their fears. If Jesus is alive, if, if the world is new and different, then there's nothing truly to be afraid of for the Christian. Because Jesus has overcome all of our true enemies, sin, death, and hell. They've all been thrown down. Nothing another human can do to you ultimately matters. And I just want to wonder aloud if the modern Christian church in Canada is known for its lack of fear. Don't really think so. In general, what I tend to notice is quite a bit of worry about the future. Quite a bit of of trepidation or of anxiety of of living in a world that doesn't share or actively rejects our values and beliefs. I see fear about being marginalized or being left, left out. Perhaps this morning it might do your soul some good to listen to the angel. Listen to Jesus tell you, you don't have to be afraid. There's nothing truly to fear. The world is made new. Jesus is alive. Everything is different. Don't be afraid. It's the first commission. It's given to these women. Go, tell the disciples. That leads us to part two, the anti-commission. We mustn't forget about the guards, nearly killed by shock or fright from their encounter with the angel. What I find interesting about the guards is uh, they had the most evidence for the resurrection of any character in the scriptures, at least until Jesus starts appearing to people later on. But think about it, they saw the sealed tomb, they saw the stone, the size of the stone that sealed it, they saw Jesus's body go inside, They saw an angel come down, they felt the earthquake, they saw the stone moved, and they saw an empty tomb afterwards. Depending on their exact state, they may have even heard the angel speak to the women. It's actually a a, a large pile of evidence, and it's more evidence than anyone else got. There's this modern belief that some of us have, and I, I sort of have sometimes, that my convictions follow evidence. A lot of us have been steeped in a scientific method, and we believe, hey, we're just people who follow the evidence, aren't we? We often conclude, whoever has the most evidence for a thing, the best evidence for a thing, well, that person will be the most likely to believe, won't they? Well, that's not how human nature works. That's what, we, that's what we've learned. Sometimes that's true. In certain arenas and areas, it's true, but if you read the scriptures, and if you've been with us, we've been doing this series in 1 Samuel, we learn the people with the most access to God, the most direct evidence of of His work, those are not necessarily the people who end up believing. Sometimes they are, but not always, because belief in God always carries a cost with it, and it's always at some point an article of faith you cannot get all the way to God on, on sort of sheer evidence. And I say that because maybe this morning you are a person who is skeptical of the claims of Christianity or of Jesus, and maybe you've you've uh, you've concluded that you need more evidence before you will believe. I, I need to see something else. And I would say, maybe, that's, that's maybe possible, but it's also possible, and in fact, just Uh, statistically more likely, that you've already made up your mind about what you will believe, no matter what evidence you find out there. And I'd simply encourage you this morning to doubt your doubts. And what I mean by that is as much skepticism and cynicism as you put forward towards Christianity, just put all that skepticism and cynicism toward all the other things you think or need or believe. Just try to level the psychological playing fields of your mind. Most people dismiss Christianity, not because of a lack of evidence, but because of either a disdain for for faith or the accounting of what faith in Jesus will cost them. Because this is just a prime example. The guards who have the most evidence, they end up not believing, or perhaps they secretly believe, but they at least act like they don't. But anyways, verse 11, the women are off to find the disciples. The guards are off back into town to find the chief priests and elders of the Jewish people. Remember, these guards are Roman. But the soldiers don't go to a Roman place. They're not headed to the Praetorium or Pilate's residence. They're off to find the Jewish high uh, chief priests because they know that those folks, they are very invested in what happens to Jesus. And the Jewish leaders, it says here, they hatch this plan, we'll give you some money. You spread the rumor that the disciples stole the body. And in return, we'll protect you if the governor gets mad at you for dereliction of duty or something, you know, we'll protect you. The soldiers accept the offer. And, and verse 15 Matthew says, and this is, this story's been, been everywhere ever since. The parallels between the women and the, uh, women and the angels, and the soldiers and the chief priests I think are quite striking. The angel says, don't be afraid, he's not here, he's risen. The chief priests say, don't be afraid of the governor, we'll handle that. The angel says, go, 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 tell the disciples that he's risen. The chief priests say, go, tell the people that he's been stolen. The women say, the women go in fear and joy to do as they're told, the soldiers go in fear with pockets full of money to do as they've been told. And this commission of Jesus has spread from the disciples to the world ever since it, it exists to this day, it exists right here. The anti-commission that Jesus is dead and been stolen, that spread from the guards to the people to the world and has been around ever since. And from the very earliest moment, the commission of Jesus has been opposed by different anti-commissions of those who do not believe. Perhaps because of fear, perhaps because of love of money, perhaps because of jealousy. Maybe you're just trying to stay out of trouble with your boss or whatever. The anti-commission has spread alongside the message of Jesus. And why I point that out is I think it makes sense of the world we live in. Sometimes it's easy for Christians to think, depending on how many Christians live around you, to think like, wait, and why doesn't everyone believe this? We point to our evidence, we point to our reasons, we point to our explanations, and it all seems pretty straightforward. But it's not, right? (laughs) Our streets, our apartment buildings are full of those people who don't believe. So if you're a Christian and you're listening to here today, what I want you to know is that it kind of normalizes the experience for you. Of course the world has people who don't believe, who oppose the message. It's the way it's been since the very start. Of course some don't believe. That's how it's been from the beginning. It need not be overly discouraging to you. But if for those of you who are not a Christian, I would just encourage you to take some time to consider the following questions. What do you stand to lose if you believe in the story of Jesus? Is there something at stake? Besides the truth. Is it money? Is it reputation? Don't push off a sincere search for the truth. The soldiers, they weren't telling the truth. They were being pragmatic. They were being self-interested, self-protective. But let's even talk about part three, the Great Commission. To me, the next logical question is, so what? (laughs) In this sense, okay, you've come to believe in the resurrection, well, what's different about the world in the case that you do? Perhaps you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm in, I believe Jesus rose again, what next? What changes because of this event? Well, if you look at verse 16, the disciples go to Galilee, it's a mountain they've been directed to, they meet Jesus, and there's two different responses. Some believed and worshiped, great, way to go. Some doubted. (laughs) Have you ever felt like a bad disciple of Jesus because you have doubts? feel like a lesser Christian, like, man, I can't worship Jesus without reservation. I have all these intellectual or emotional things I wrestle with. I I don't think you need to feel guilty about that. Work at belief, sure, but you belong in the company of the earliest disciples of Jesus who, as they stood with the risen Jesus, are like, I'm not sure, (laughs) still got some questions. But here is what's different about the world if Jesus is alive. Two things, and this is what Christians, by the way, if if you're not a Bible person, not a Christian, this is what we commonly call the Great Commission, verse 18 and 19. Two things I want to point out in here that, that describe, well, what is different about the world if he's alive? The first thing is, because he's alive, he has all the authority. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Scriptures tell us that his rising speaks to us of a triumph over Satan and sin and death. So he won, he's got, you know, the, champion, the champion's belt on. The, the Apostle Paul says when Jesus rose from the dead, he's given a name, given authority above every other name. He has the best name. Just because Jesus ascended to the Father does not mean his authority on earth has lapsed in any way. No, he's got all the authority in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He rules. If Jesus is alive, he has authority. And if authority, then the, the, then the, then the power, the right to tell you how to live. And maybe that's just what's off-putting to many people about the resurrection. You understand somewhere, somewhere deep inside, if Jesus is alive, if he is God, then he can tell you how to live in his world. And maybe you just don't like that feeling of not being in control of your life. But let me tell you what's comforting about that. He's not going to be a dictator like all of our other human rulers. He's not going to use his power to sort of, sort of grind us down and step on our necks so he can get ahead. He's not going to accumulate all kinds of wealth at our expense. He's going to use his authority to lead us in the way we would have chosen if we could know everything he knows. Did you catch that? If you could understand, if you could truly understand everything about the world, everything about your life, if you could make decisions based on all that knowledge and wisdom, then that's where where Jesus is leading you with his authority. Into the ways of wisdom, into the ways that are good. Like, like the best parent, he's not giving us exactly what we want, he's giving us what we need and what's ultimately good for us. His authority is being exercised to bring about his kingdom and his righteousness. But secondly, the risen Jesus, according to the very last nine, and the very last behold if you were looking for it, the risen Jesus is with his people always, to the very end of the age. What changes because of the resurrection? What what changes is he's with us spiritually. He's with his people, wherever they are, wherever they go, he accompanies with them. To the end of all things, to the end of the world, he will be there. I think it's easy sometimes to view this passage as a set of marching orders uh, handed out by our our supreme commander, and and in some senses it is. But in my mind's eye, I think that the picture that we sometimes have is Jesus is sitting in some sort of, you know, general's tent, top of a big mountain or something, and he's telling us, you know, go, go, go do all these things, go make disciples, and then he sits in the tent while you leave and start doing stuff. But that's actually an incorrect picture. It's not the picture in this passage. We are sent to make disciples, yes, in His authority, with His power, but with His presence. He's right there with us. So that means whether you go to a big church or a small church or in your small group or in a one-on-one meeting or in, in, in a family worship time when your children are all fussy or Bible reading with sleepy eyes, wandering prayer meetings, the power and the presence and the authority of Jesus is in those places, all of them. He's with you, and he's with you then in your fear and your doubt. He's with you in all your fumbling steps of obedience. And Jesus is with you as you confess your sins and tell your friends and your family that you're sorry when you sin against them. And he's with you as, as you set up chairs or watch children or serve a cup of coffee on Sunday morning. It means none of your labor in the kingdom of God is in vain. He's with us. Jesus is with us. And listen, he will be with us in whatever Canada looks like in the next six months and in the next 60 years, when most of us are dead or whatever. Whatever wars, whatever pandemics, whatever scientific advancements shape the trajectory of our world, what we can know is that the resurrection of Jesus is more consequential. It's more weighty, it's more transformational than anything else that will happen. Jesus is alive. You don't have to be afraid. He has the authority, and he's with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you, and we praise you, and we are grateful for what you have done. Thank you for Matthew and the other Gospel writers who, who tell us what you have done, uh, who, who instruct us and, and relate the details of it, and for the later writers who explain it to us. Help us to take it to heart. And I'd offer a special prayer for any this morning who are wrestling with faith who are trying to understand, maybe trying to believe, would you speak to their hearts? Would you help them to know that what is written here is true and it's for our good? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.